have a look at God's word together for a, a few minutes now. I've got too many things here. What should I do? Let's balance them. Pop that there. Pop that there. This is looking good. This is the most important thing that I have in my hands, may I add. Um, can we bring up the PowerPoint? That would be marvellous. I have something wonderful in my hands. Look, Mark, I saw your 99 pence worth of after eights, and I have upped the ante somewhat. This, this is a Lily O'Brien's Petite Indulgence Collection, don't you know? Oh yes, look at it. It's a box of chocolates. It's even, I think it's old stock from Christmas. I found one that was wrapped up. Look at that! The others weren't, and this is slightly battered, so I do think it was probably at the back of the shelf somewhere, but I bought it. Um, And there's something marvellous about a box of chocolates, isn't there? Ooh, what's he's going to open it? What's inside? Look at that. The expectation. Wow, your um, juice is flowing yet? Mmm, look at that. Beautifully made. And then inside, let's lift it off. You're thinking, what's he put in there? <laughs> you, know me, you know me too well. Nothing! Chocolates, look, they're real. Absolutely marvellous. Let me just... Um, Good. That is really good. Shall I, um, is it appropriate just to... Okay, this, I checked, is a raspberry cream. Oh. And that's the end of the sermon. (laughs) Oh. Marvellous. I'm going to have to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Didn't think this through. <laughs> but there is a real sense of excitement, especially a posh box of chocolates. They really are good. I'll be at the door afterwards. If you smile really nicely and you're in the first 19 people <laughs> <laughs> leaving, you can get a chocolate. Mm. Please be careful, there are nuts and soy and milk and all sorts, but yeah, you're very, very welcome. Um, there's something about an expectation when we hold a box of chocolates in our hands, an excitement about what we might discover, what mm, that really was good, and what we might enjoy, um, and there's a sense of anticipation, and we really love it, we recognise a box of chocolates is a wonderful thing. But I want to suggest to you that actually, right now, I hold in my hand something far, far, far more wonderful something far more extraordinary. And yet I think it's a wonder we can sometimes miss. I think we can get over familiar with the fact that we actually have the Bible, God's Word, at such easy access. And we just say, oh, it's just a Bible. But actually, here in my hand, I hold something that has brought hope and healing and transformation, and inspiration, and wisdom, and truth, and has changed the lives of billions of people throughout history. This book, our words inspired by God himself, the Spirit of God has breathed these words, as human hands have written them. And through humbling ourselves and reading this written word prayerfully, we call it the Word of God, God's written word prayerfully and expectantly, Do you know what? We actually meet with the living word. We meet with Jesus as we dig into the written word. And as we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. 
And yet sometimes I think we probably get more excited about a box of Lily O'Brien's Petite Collection, right? Just here again this morning, the truth of what this book is really all about. The word of God, Hebrews says, is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It's a potent book. All scripture, Paul says to Timothy, as he's trying to teach this young leader, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, whoever you are, so that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalmist says, your word, Lord, is like a light shining in the darkness from my feet, a lamp to my path. Jesus said, man should not live, or mankind, humanity, should not live just on bread alone. By every word comes from the mouth of God. This is true every time we open scripture, guys. It's true as we start this new series together and open a new book of scripture together. Thank you so much, Michael, for reading it, the book of James. Forget the box of chocolates that, nice as they are, are ultimately just sugar. And they will be eaten up and they'll be gone. Instead, I invite us to come to this new sermon series with curiosity, with focus, with hunger, with expectation. As we open this new series today, we begin to look at the book of James this time. We know God's going to speak to us. How do you know, Matt? Because God loves to speak to his people. My sheep know my voice, Jesus says. I speak to them. So let's just pray, shall we? Lord, help us, just in this moment, to really understand what it means when we open your word. We humble ourselves this morning, we say, come Holy Spirit, come and take the written word, help us to meet the living word, Jesus Christ. We humble ourselves, we come expectantly, with open ears, Whether we think we're right, we're wrong, in a good place or a bad place, we say, speak to us, Lord, now. For we're your people and we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's open the book of James this morning. This is our new series. It's going to give us a flavour of things to come. We're starting this courageously Christ-like Series, that looks like a proper youth talk, that, doesn't it? That could be a youth weekend. Courageously Christ-like. Come on. But actually, I quite like it. I love, I love it. It's a cool background. There's another really lovely one that we'll also use, which just has a uh, wash pot and a towel. Just hints at what Jesus did. And it's all about daring to be like Jesus. In a nutshell, that's what this book of James is all about. It's an honest and a real and a gritty call to God's people, not just to believe in Jesus, but to live like Jesus in their everyday lives, even when it's hard. No, especially when it's hard. So as we come to look at it now, together we're going to do two things on this first uh, exploration this morning. First, we're going to seek to ask some 
really key questions about what this book's all about. And then secondly, we're just going to touch briefly, I'm going to have to skim like skimming stones over some of these thoughts in this first passage as we begin to sense some of the initial points James is making in this first chapter that set the themes for the rest of the letter. And as we begin, we're going to ask questions such as, well, well, we can ask these questions of any book of the Bible. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but all of us can and should. Questions like, who wrote this book? And when and who to and what was the context what was going on at the time what were they trying to communicate what is God saying to us or to me through this today so let's touch on those really briefly firstly this book is written by James very good Matt thanks very much how do you know that well he says so it's really easy this you know being a minister it's not so hard who wrote this oh, it says James easy right so James says a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ James, or actually Jacob, would have been his real name, Jacob. Yeah, yours says Jacob, great, yeah. <laughs> GPG's like, you've got that wrong, mate. <laughs> yeah. It is also Jacob, would be his proper name. And uh, which James? Well, there's two James that are disciples. Is it a toss-up between those two? No, it's not actually. It's a different James. It's actually James, the brother of Jesus. James, son of Joseph. That's who we believe wrote this book. Now James clearly hung out with Jesus throughout his ministry. But we get the sense that he possibly wasn't a believer throughout Jesus' ministry. (laughs) After all, this was his brother. And it was the people at Jesus' closest that struggled most and went, "Mm, isn't he Joseph's son? Who is this guy? Well, this was Jesus' brother. And it's likely that he was one of the brothers with his mother. You remember that incident where Jesus is talking to everyone? It's like, your your mum and your brothers are outside. They're saying, come on, you know, quit. Quit what you're doing. Give it a break and come outside. Stop all this and have some food. It's quite likely that James was one of them going, come on, enough of this now. Perhaps he felt Jesus was going too far. But yet we discover two things about James after Jesus' death. Firstly, we discover that Jesus made a beeline for James after his resurrection. And he went and spoke to him personally. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Um, it just outlines, Paul outlines all the different people that Jesus met. Cephas or Peter and the, and the apostles and this and this and this. And James is in there, his brother. So we know that he met with Jesus, the risen Jesus, after his resurrection. And secondly, we learn through Acts that James actually became one of the most prominent leaders in the Jerusalem church. So the Jerusalem church, that early gathering of believers, followers of Jesus, before it all scattered everywhere, although it scattered pretty quickly, you'll know from Acts, because of all the people from around the nations that were there, filled with the Holy Spirit, the church very quickly grew and was scattered. But that initial group, those followers, formed a gathering, an ecclesia, a church in Jerusalem. And James became one of the key pillars of the community respected as a man of wisdom, as a man of courage, as a peacemaker in the church. And so it's likely that when he met with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, in that moment he went, yes, he is my brother by my dad, half-brother if you like, but he's also the Lord and the King of all. He's conquered death and he's alive. And I will follow him with all I have. So that's who wrote it. James, brother of Jesus. 
And who's he written it to? And why? And what was going on? Well, it's quite a formal letter, you'll notice. Some of Paul's letters are really personal and really specific. This one is more of a collection of thoughts. It's a letter to all the believers scattered around, or the twelve tribes scattered around. He's using language to say that the people of God scattered among the nations. And it's a collection of his wisdom and his really practical teaching, written probably, we think, about 20 years after Jesus had died, rose again and gone to be with the Father in heaven. So, in 20 years' time, the church had established in Jerusalem by now, and James had been in leadership for many years, two decades at least, and he writes with insight and honesty, with practical application in mind. It's an extraordinary gathering of his teaching. And as we open this formal letter, if you like, we might find that its rhythm and its themes sound strangely familiar. And you'd be right. James writes very similarly to the book of Proverbs. Some of you will know and love the book of Proverbs. Old Testament wisdom. These pithy, short, practical, amazing, sometimes funny, often one-liners or two-liners, teaching us the wisdom of God and how to apply it to our lives. James is influenced by that style of writing and he is writing here almost proverbially, bringing his wisdom. But the other thing that you notice is that James is so rooted in the teaching of Jesus. What we've got in this book is so rooted in not just thoughts about Jesus, but what Jesus told us to do, how to live in the kingdom, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. You see, James knows that many in his early church context were struggling at this point. Choosing to follow Jesus was not easy. It was actually really tough. And in those early days, it led to financial hardship, isolation, and even arrest, maybe even death. Many believers were being pulled back by their old ways of life, tempted to compromise in certain areas, tempted just to, I've had enough, I'll become lukewarm, tempted just to walk away with the disillusionment and the struggle. And so James in this book is calling every believer to have courage. Don't lose heart. Have courage to live out your faith to live like Jesus, even when it's hard. And so he tackles head-on issues that we might like to avoid. Issues like pain and struggle and gossip and arrogance and money and hardship. And he calls God's people not just to hold fast to the truth of who God is, but to passionately, uncompromisingly dare to live like Jesus through it all. To come back. To come on. Let's do this. He calls them to bravely stand together against the power of the waggling tongue and the power gains that had gained a place within some parts of the church. And then the economic and political pressure that was being hurt was hurting and being put on them by society from the outside. And he sought to draw his people together help them repent from their wandering, to press in to loving one another, to loving the poor, to taking Jesus seriously, to courageously following the ways of Jesus in all their lives, no matter the cost. And you know it took huge courage to do this in the early church. And I want to say to you, I believe it still takes huge courage to do this today, if we take this seriously. As we come to James, we're reminded, brothers and sisters, friends here and online, we're reminded that discipleship, following Jesus, 
is about the whole of our lives. It's not just about what we believe. It's not just about what we do on a Sunday. The biggest, easiest mistake is that God's, to think that God's really interested in my Sunday work or my religious life. He really likes it when I pray and he really likes it when I read the Bible. He does. <laughs> he really does because then he gets to chat back. <laughs> it's not one way at that point. But he's just as interested in all of our lives, how you conduct yourself at work, the conversations you have, the creativity you express when you're painting or acting or whatever it is your passions are, your marriage, your singleness, your housing, your finances, whatever it might be, your parenting. Jesus cares passionately and he calls you to follow him in all of it. Really? Yes. Is it easy? No. Have I got it all sorted? No. Am I still learning? Yes. We're learning this together. And the book of James is so insightful and so helpful for all of us. We have something hugely, hugely potent here in the letter of James. It's amazingly challenging, truly wonderful, both back then and for us today. In fact, it's so potent, it's caused controversy. You know, Martin Luther, 16th century, the great reformer. I'm not going to do history lesson, but the one that turned around and said, hey, the church is getting it all wrong, we need to do it differently. He tried to throw James out of the Bible. He's like, whoa, what's going on with this one? He's asking too much. James is too concerned about what we do and not concerned enough about the grace of God. But I'm so glad James is in here because I believe James knows we don't earn our faith. It's clear. He doesn't think you can impress God and somehow win forgiveness. No, he knows that's a gift from the kindness and the love of Father God. But he does want to say, but what you do still matters. Just because it doesn't earn your salvation, if you love Jesus, then live like you love Jesus. It's what James is saying, an extraordinary challenge. So expect to be challenged, folks. I am, as we uh, tackle this book over the next few weeks. Um, this term. Come expectantly. Let's expect God to speak through it. Let's expect that it's not just going to teach us new information about God, but it might challenge how we actually live our lives. It might cause us to change how we live as church or as believers or as families. This book is about becoming courageously Christ-like, daring to be like Jesus, even when it's hard, even when it goes against the grain of society, because the first an overarching truth acknowledged by James in this book is simply this. That you know what? It can be tough. It can be tough. So we're going to skim really quickly just through this first chapter. We're going to touch on some really deep themes that I'm just going to point to and look at this morning. encourage you to go away and think and pray and explore them yourselves. But unsurprisingly, James starts by talking about trials and struggles and difficulties. Consider it pure joy, he says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I wonder if you ever asked yourself, is a Christian life supposed to be this hard? <laughs> ever asked that? No, I have. <laughs> is it really? Am I getting something wrong here? <laughs> is it me? You're in good company if you've ever wondered that. This book's for you. Get stuck into James. Because trials are a reality in this journey of faith. If you're struggling right now, I want to say to you, you're not alone. 
Living for Jesus and living like Jesus is not always easy. It does not ensure you against difficulties in this life. In fact, sometimes you'll face trials specifically because you're following Jesus and it goes against the grain and the workplace or the friendship group or society doesn't like it. Remember what Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. came from his mouth. He told us it's not going to be easy, just as they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, Jesus said. And that's what's going on for the early church, James is writing to. The trials look like social rejection at this point, economic boycott of their businesses, loss of favour and opportunities in society, arrest, even death, all because they follow Jesus. James himself, we believe, was killed not that long after writing down this work. We read in Revelation 1, the opening words of the Apostle John. I've never forgotten these. Someone preached on them when I was 16. And it just struck me at that point. It opened my eyes to what I was entering into as I was becoming a Christian. John writes to the churches. He's isolated, marooned on Patmos, an island. This is John the Apostle. And he writes to the churches at the beginning of Revelation. He says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And you go, what now? Has he got that wrong? Did I mishear that? It's almost like, do you want me to bless you at the end, and may the suffering and the patient endurance bless you this week? You go, what? That's not right. Surely he means the constant victories, and the glory in the kingdom that's ours. But no, he's superbly honest here. Just like James, he knows alongside the victories, alongside the days of joy and celebration, alongside the hope, it's also, sometimes, it feels like it's just a long obedience in the same direction. Sometimes it just feels like perseverance, as Mark was talking to us about, is all that we can do. And yes, we look to God to help us in that You see, from the beginning, Christians weren't following Jesus for a quick fix or because he made their lives easy. They were following him because they realized he was Lord and his word is true and he's the King of Kings and he died and he paid the price for all our sin and all our mess and he rose again and he's the Alpha and the Omega and all of history is about him and all of future will be about him. They followed him Because he's their Lord and their King, their Saviour and their Friend. And despite how it sometimes seems looking in or looking on from the outside, when it's tough, they realised that he really does lead us into life everlasting and life in all its fullness. Trials are a reality in this Christian life, friends. But James doesn't want us to misunderstand. You see, he wants us to look at them through not the eyes of human wisdom, heaven's wisdom in an extraordinary opening statement he says what you heard me read what Michael read trials we face can be considered joy joy really well yes according to James because whilst they're hard they actually come with an unexpected gift in these trials we develop perseverance and that perseverance leads us to becoming more like Jesus wow James is not belittling trials He's not saying they're not hard. He's not going, oh, just be happy about it. That's not what he's doing here. It's far more deep than that. It's far more extraordinary than that. He recognises that trials can test our faith. But rather than applying the reasoning of the world, 
says if it's tough, you're doing something wrong, you should give up. Rather than saying joy can only be found in success and achievement, James says something deeply profound, that actually in this Christian life of discipleship, trials can make us more like Jesus. This is the great goal of our faith, friends, to become like Jesus. James uses the word perfect, that you may become complete, perfect. Like God is perfect. And you go, what does he mean? They use it throughout his book. Keep an eye out and ear out for that word. It will keep coming back as we go through James. Well, here's a way of thinking of it. Fully like Jesus. Fully like Jesus. And perseverance is working that as we persevere through trials, just as Jesus did. For that reason, we can know joy. We can know God's in this. And even though I don't understand it, He's making me more like Jesus. The storms of life will come, friends. But if we fix our eyes on them alone, we can lose heart, we can doubt God, we can blame ourselves, get blown and battered from one misunderstanding to another. But instead, James is calling us to understand that what we're facing is not outside of God's grace. It's not outside of God's grace, what you're going through now if you're struggling, friends. Even the hardest trials, God is at work. They're not the enemy of our Christian faith. They're part of it. As we grow in maturity, perseverance, faith, more like Jesus. So if you're going through it right now, and your faith is feeling a bit battered, lots of us have gone through all sorts these last two years. As a pastor, I get a unique insight into lots of the trials and struggles you're going through. It's a privilege responsibility but I just want to share what James would say which is don't rely on human understanding but ask God for his insight, ask for wisdom if any of you lacks wisdom you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you ask for God's perspective ask with faith James says and do not doubt that you're loved, don't doubt that God hears your cry, realise and know and trust that God is generous he's not wanting to hold back from you he's not judging you saying well you haven't been that good so this is what happens no, do not let the struggle shape your thinking, do not for a moment think that he's given up on you, instead realise that he is with you as we heard, as Jenny gave that word even now he's working in you Even through these struggles, he is bringing treasures that can only be found there. Even through these struggles, he is bringing a beauty and a perfection that can't be found anywhere else. He's working to make us, he's working to make you more like Jesus. And don't hear me belittling struggles. Don't hear James belittling struggles. But hear the wisdom and the truth of heaven. Alright, I'm going to speed things up a little bit here. Having tackled head-on, and there's so much more we could go in, I barely skimmed the surface on that one. That is my biggest point. Um, There's so much we can talk about, suffering and all things. We can't go there today, but just hear that truth. He now tackles another thing that we might want to avoid with courage and passion. He now talks about the prickly issue of financial struggles. Why not chuck them all in, James? Let's go for it. You know, let's really rock the boat. reality for so many in the church at the time he wrote and the truth is a reality for so many of us here this morning and a reality for so many in our communities some here some of us will be financially rich will have assets others will not be struggling financially 
Some when we heard the news this week about interest rates going up and recession and highest inflation since the 80s, etc., etc., a mind will have turned to reviewing our portfolios and our investments or our nest eggs. For others, minds may have turned to how we're going to put food on the table or pay the bills. Many of us may have been somewhere in between. It's not a statement of judgment I'm making here, friends. It's just a fact. We have to recognize we're all in different places financially. Indeed, many of you may feel uncomfortable with me even talking about money in this way. It's not very British, is it? Well, blame James. He did it, not me. He was not afraid to talk about money in this book. He recognizes it as one of the traps that can really distort our faith, actually, and our understanding of God, and they can hinder, can hinder our walk with him. So in the culture of James's day, financial success was something to be strived for. It was admired even in the church. More than that, it was often understood theologically, if you like, as a sign of God's favour, always, <laughs> or a sign of great wisdom this person must have. It's something to be elevated. People who were rich and powerful, they were worthy of special honour and attention, even within the gathering of God's people. Boy, does James have something to say about that later. But the truth is, it is still like that in our culture of influence and affluence, excess and celebrity, investments and property today. Most who may not think it, it can be like that in our church culture too. So James immediately tackles this issue in the most direct manner. Here's his words, I love this. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Thanks, James. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Right. Since they will pass away like a wild flower. For those struggling financially or tempted to say, God doesn't bless me or favour me, he says, no, it's nonsense. You can boast about your high position. That is that you are loved and saved. You're a forgiven child of God through his kindness alone. For those with lots of money, he says, well, your pride should not be in your money, but in your humiliation. It's possible he's being sarcastic here. It's possible. Some commentators think so. But I wonder if he's really just saying that your pride should be in the realisation that your money and your wealth have brought you nothing before God. Rather before him, you're just the same as everyone else. A loved, saved, forgiven child of God through his kindness alone. And this is eternally true of every single one of us here, every single person tuning in online. If you're struggling this morning, hear it again. You are a loved, saved, forgiven child of God through his kindness alone, through his grace alone, through his love alone, through his mercy alone. The truth is, no matter how much we have or how little we have, all earthly riches will fade away that we cling on to. And those who anchor their trust in them alone will fade away with them. Gosh, we you allowed to say that, Matt? James says it. Fade away. The grass is gone. And so James turns our focus now to something that will never fade away. He wants us most of all to know there is a wealth far more wonderful than anything we can acquire here on earth. It's the treasure that waits us in eternity. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amazing. You can hear Jesus in that, can't you? Don't store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. All right, let's finish up as quick as I can now. Having kicked off so honestly and grittily about the reality that this Christian walk is tough, 
James now brings a massive however point. Yes, it's true. It is tough. But never let the trials and struggles in this life corrupt your understanding of who God really is. Because they can. I'm struggling so God must be the cause. If he's the cause, then he mustn't love me. I'm suffering, so God must be uncaring or unable to help. I'm tempted, so God must be tempting me. Why would he do that? He must be unkind. Perhaps he's honest and real wrestles are something we all recognize from time to time. They were likely some of the wrestles of the earliest Christians that James is writing to. But above all, James does not want us to make the mistake about who God really is. Yes, he allows us to face many kinds of trials, just as Jesus did. Yes, our journey is not always easy. It's often glorious, full of breakthroughs and joy and celebration, encouragement, but not always. Not always. Sometimes it's just incredibly hard. But don't ever think he's the cause of your suffering or the sort of God who is trying to catch us out and cause us to fail. And most of all, James wants to say in this first part, don't ever, 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 ever think God tempts you to sin. Don't think that's the kind of God he is. He isn't. All of us can recognise what temptation is. It's that inner impulse, that drive, that voice that goes, oh, I want that. And I don't really care about the consequences. I don't really care. I just want that. James is saying, don't try and pin the blame on God for that. Don't try and pin the blame on others. Just recognise that comes from yourself. And recognise where it leads. It leads, desire leads to sin. Sin leads to Death for God leads us in the very opposite direction. Hear it this morning. God leads us into life and life in all its fullness. So James finishes this section with a passionate call for us not to let the the struggles and trials blight our understanding of God. Dear friends, do not be deceived, he says. I know it's tough, but don't be deceived. Don't let Your eyes lose sight and your heart lose sight of the one who calls you. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. It comes from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. Friends, I don't know if you're struggling right now. But don't let your struggles block or ruin, or scar your image of Father God. Don't let any of us be deceived, God, this morning, about who you are, I pray. Every good and perfect gift comes from him, from the Father of heavenly lights. And Those beautiful, we sung about how beautiful they are, the sun, the moon, the stars really is the reference they're making, but even they come and go like shifting shadows. Trials come and go, friends. Seasons that are tough come and go. Temptation comes and goes. Financial prosperity or struggle comes and goes like shifting shadows. Our God is unchanging. He is unchangingly generous, unchangingly good, unchangingly kind, unchangingly faithful, and he unchangingly loves you and loves me and loves us. Because as James said, he chose us considers us the first fruit, the very best part of his plan for his kingdom to come and the goodness he has in store. Can I invite the band back? We're going to finish this morning by singing one final hymn, but can I invite you, if you're able, just to stand with me for a moment?
Friends, don't be surprised when following Jesus isn't easy. The Bible is full of encouragement. Do not lose heart. Do not be afraid. Do not give up. Keep going. Keep on keeping on. Persevere. For it is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Recognize this morning that our God doesn't change. He is the same God who's always loved us and always will, who's called us and his plans for us are good. So let's have courage this morning to let him challenge us, to let him change us and shape our thoughts and actions. Let us give our yes again to this call to Jesus to live for him, to live like him, even if it's tough, because it leads to life in all its fullness. But are we humble enough to believe? Are we wise enough this morning to listen and understand? Are we courageous enough to live it out and follow? Lord God, help us. We love you, and we want to follow you through thick and thin through it all. Pray your blessing and strength on us all, and especially those who right now in this moment say, it is hard. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and show the Father's heart again. Come and show us Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.